You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. God Almighty, we ask that you would forgive the sins of the preacher for their many, and that you would shepherd us through your word, that you would show us our need for Jesus and give him to us. Amen. You may be seated. We've been journeying through 1 Corinthians. We're in the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16. And I have a question to ask us at the beginning of this. Maybe aside from today, because that was so awesome, what's the part of the worship service that you tend to hate above everything else? If you're like me, it's the announcements. There are a number of reasons why announcements are horrible. Number one, we all tend to check out and it usually ends up sounding something like blah, 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 right? Number two, because announcements aren't technically a biblical element of worship. I mean, the Bible tells us to sing, the Bible tells us to pray, the Bible tells us to preach, the Bible tells us to celebrate the sacraments, but the Bible doesn't tell us to remind everyone of upcoming bake sales or small group gatherings, right? That said, I think there's a case why certain announcements are kind of practically important and a good thing to do. But nevertheless, I've, I've never heard anyone say ever, that worship service was the best. Those announcements were amazing, right? Man, the way the pastor talked about those Boston butts just moved my soul. I was converted from death to life, right? You might go to the Advent for the music, but I go there for the announcements. Oh, oh, so good, said no one ever, right? No one ever. So here's the funny thing about all this. We've been preaching our way through 1 Corinthians, and if we're honest, it feels like we've hit the announcement section of Paul's letter. Paul jams for a while in chapter 15 on the glorious implications of the resurrection, amazing theology, life-changing truths, and then... Chapter 16 hits. Hey church, just a few announcements. First off, church, don't forget to set money aside for the Jerusalem Pledge Drive. By the way, Corinth, you're falling behind. Cathedral Church of Galatia has already raised their full support. We're going to set up a thermometer in back, okay? Second off, my missionary travels, they've changed. I just wanted to give you an itinerary update. Third, your interim pastor, Timothy, he's going to be arriving soon. Treat the guy well. We need some volunteers and a welcoming committee. You know, some toiletries, a pimento cheese tray sandwich thing, and, uh, you know, uh, a place to stay and those kinds of things, etc., etc., etc. And so when we're reading this, we may be tempted to, in Pavlovian instinct, check out, because this is Paul's announcement section. But that would be to forget, number one, that the Word of God in every part is living and active, and two, that churches across time, space, and culture tend to have the same kinds of issues. So, to use a wonderful Southern phrase, Paul's announcement to Corinth just might could be Paul's announcements to us. So first off, verses one through four, check them out. As a pastor, I periodically hear the criticism of churches, and particularly church services. They're always asking for money. And whenever they talk about stewardship, it kind of feels like a telethon. And every Sunday they pass that plate around, why do we take up an offering? Feels a bit icky to me. What we see here in verses one through four is that taking up collections, and taking up collections in the context of a church gathering, is actually a pretty ancient biblical practice of the church. 
Verse 2 has Paul encouraging the Corinthian Christians. On the first day of every week, i.e. on that day when you gather for worship, so presumably one way you could do this is publicly when you come together, put something aside, store it up, so that we don't have to take up a special collection or what our Baptist friends call a love offering when I get there, right? The idea here is that part of the job of the church is to pool its monetary resources, and this is the important part, for the purpose of effective ministry. We give money, Advent, so that the gospel might go forth. So yes, we give money to pay for the salaries of people like me so that I can be freed up to use my gifts to minister the word to you, to equip you to minister the word to others, to provide pastoral oversight and care for our flock, unencumbered by my need to tent make outside this place. And man, what a gift and what a privilege it is, Advent. Thank you. We also give money to maintain a building, not primarily because necessarily this building has intrinsic value, but because it gives us a hub and a home base for the ministry of the gospel. We give money to support missionaries, to support other efforts in the church outside our walls, like Corinth is being encouraged to support Jerusalem. And you know I believe in this one. We give money to support our artistic endeavors, musicians, choir, aesthetics, all to minister the gospel more effectively to our hearts and to equip each and every one of us for the ministry of the gospel outside these walls. And the church seems to have instinctively understood this from the beginning, that an efficient and effective way to do this is to take up a weekly offering where we all commit to giving sacrificially, giving out of faith, and giving, in Paul's words here in verse 2, as each of us prosper. And yes, totally, pastors and churches have abused this practice of the church for selfish and ill-gotten gain. Yes, we will always have with us the swindlers and the extorters and the manipulators. And they were around in Paul's day too. Just read the book of Acts. But we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Money's not bad. Asking for money isn't bad. Pooling money for effective ministry is actually the opposite of bad. It's a good thing. And the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So God, we pray that you would help us to make us faithful with our money. Let's pull out a few other nuggets from this passage. Four more to be exact. First, notice verses five through six. Paul says, I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter. Paul is giving a heads up. He's basically saying, hey, I'm gonna need to stay in someone's home. What he's saying is that disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, understand that all their possessions, all their worldly goods, including their homes, are actually vehicles for ministry. Have you ever thought of your home as a potential vehicle for ministry? Not only to those whom you live with, but for the sake of the broader church. Not everyone has the kind of situation, home, or possession to engage ministry in all the same kinds of ways, but the point holds that our homes, like our money and our schedules and our very selves, they're gifts of God, and they're freed up by the gospel to be given away for the sake of ministry to others. Maybe some of you today, maybe right now, maybe the Lord's given you a word, nudging you, 
And I'd encourage you to pay attention to that. Listen to it and heed it. The second nugget, look at verse 7. Paul says, I hope to spend some time with you, and then he uses this cool phrase, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. It reminds me of this passage from James, James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and do such and such, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. What James is saying there and what Paul is saying here is that a Christian recognizes all of life under the sphere of God's sovereignty. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that Sunday is God's sphere and then Monday through Saturday is my sphere. I give to God one day and then I do my thing the other six days of the week and God is reminding us right now, it's all mine and don't you forget it. This whole sacred secular distinction thing that you're making, it's kind of a bit artificial. When you get up and do what you do throughout the day, it's all under me and my providence, says God. You also sense Paul saying, in, in when he's saying, if the Lord permits, that Paul has a kind of relational intimacy with God. It's kind of like he's saying, as I've been making my travel plans, I've been talking with my Father in heaven. And I assume sometime he's going to give me a more firm directive about this. In other words, Paul is attuned on a personal and experiential level to hearing the voice of God. Paul has the kind of one-on-one -on -one relationship with God that sounds like, well, the kind of interaction we would have in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with another person. Did you know that this kind of relational intimacy isn't just for the super Christians, but is accessible to you, especially through God's word and through prayer and through the Holy Spirit that lives in you, the very presence of God. Did you know that Christianity really isn't just merely about externalized corporate rituals of church going and walking through liturgies, but it also spans all the way to the personal, and dare I say, intimate relationship with God the Father? If you don't know this kind of relationship and this intimacy, you're missing out. Talk to another believer in a congregation whom you perceive to have this kind of relationship with the Lord and say, teach me what it looks like to relate to God like this. Because, oh man, there's nothing like fellowship with God. It's the kind of intimacy that made the psalmist cry out in Psalm 16. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You hear the fruit of that kind of intimacy in the overtones of Paul's language here when he says, if the Lord permits. So God, make us a church that knows that kind of fellowship with you. Third nugget, verses 10 through 11. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Evidently, it's been a thing from the beginning of the church, and I'll say it bluntly. There's a tendency for some folks in the church to beat up their pastors, or in the words of Paul, to despise them, or to do the opposite of put them at ease. Paul's obviously trying to preempt something that he's seen happen before. 
In fact, it seems to be a thing with Timothy in particular that Paul, as an older pastor, is trying to protect. Because we hear Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy with very similar language that he's using here. Let no one despise you because you're young. You know, I'll be honest. I've served churches in enough different areas of the country now, and I've witnessed some pretty brutal beatings of my pastor friends, sometimes even at the hands of otherwise godly and well-meaning individuals. And sometimes the beating isn't really about the issue that itself that someone has, but in the way that they go about dealing with that issue. Because God only knows how messed up and imperfect that we are as pastors and we really do need checks and balances and accountability just like everyone else. But I guess the question before us as one local flock is, will we pursue those checks and balances with clubs and with fists or will we seek them out with much prayer and much meekness, much gentleness and much respect and accompanied by full confessions of our own sin and our own baggage and our own self-righteousness. So I want to offer up something really specific right now. And he didn't put me up to this. I just love him, and I care about him, and I know how lonely it is to be the leader of and a pastor of a flock. Encourage your dean, Andrew. Send him an email. Write him a note. Pray for him. Give him an uplifting word. Because ministry is really lonely. And sometimes it's deeply painful. And being despised as a pastor is evidently a real thing. So Lord, help us. The fourth and final nugget. Did you pick up on the shocking juxtaposition in verse 9? Paul says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Paul is creating a kind of ministry axiom here that we all need to pay attention to. If you and I are doing effective ministry, there will be opposition. If you and I are doing effective ministry, there will be opposition. And this provides us both a challenge and an encouragement. The challenging word here is that if we're not experiencing any opposition in our lives, spiritually or otherwise, we might question whether we're engaging in any kind of effective ministry. And that's a heavy one. It challenges me. It exposes my penchant for comfort and ease. And Lord, help me heed it. The encouragement is, Advent, as we encounter opposition, it's at least a sign that we're on the right track. We're taking a stab in the right direction. You know, maybe you're starting a new job or a new semester in school, and God knows that there will be fruitful gospel ministry for you, opened to you. In fact, he's preparing the way and opening it for you. Be prepared. There will be opposition. It kind of reminds me of Jesus, actually. Remember what happened when he first entered his public ministry? He gets baptized by John, and then what happens? The Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he runs headfirst into the devil. Temptation in the wilderness. A door of effective ministry is open to us this fall, Advent, and there will be opposition. But fear not, 
for I am with you, says the Lord. Fear not, I will fight your battles, says the Lord. Stay on your knees, put on the full armor of God, the full armor of God which is the person and the work and the righteousness of Christ himself. And remember that he is your captain. He stormed the gates of hell and vanquished the foe. He died on the cross for your sins and was raised for your justification. He won by losing and he conquered by being defeated. He has accomplished the effective work to free us up for all kinds of effective work. In the words of Martin Luther, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, because one little word shall fell him. And guess what, Satan? That little word happens to be the word above all earthly powers, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he will save his people from their sins. Well, well, well. Maybe Paul's announcement sheet ain't so bad after all. And all of God's people said, Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.